Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome back to the History of England at a Gallop, New Ways, Old Ways, which covers the period dealt with in episodes 350 to 357, which is very broadly 1625 to 1629. At a Gallop is designed for a couple of reasons. You might want to take a faster, more summarised route through the period, or you might want to use it as a refresher or framework to help you sort out the contents of the detailed episodes you've just listened to before. If neither are what you want, you just don't have to listen to this at all. You may have found episodes 350 to 357 just to your liking. But look, Atagallop is here if you want it, and the world is your lobster. Last time we heard about the end of the reign of James I and VI, the first king of Britain, I suppose you might say. We had heard that James's political nous had enabled him to avoid big bust-ups, while sailing admittedly close enough to the line to experience the odd luff in his jib or two. However, he had left a few tricky issues for his son and heir, Charles, to deal with, or at least a few unexploded bombs that would need to be diffused very carefully. Potential religious problems in Scotland a legacy of distrust on behalf of the counties of England with the moral and religious rectitude of the court, or otherwise, since it was seen to have been a bit of a party palace, sugared with more than a dusting of Catholicism. A sense that maybe Parliament and the common law were better defenders of English liberty and religion than were the king. Oh, and did I mention a whopping one million quid debt? James had so enjoyed being generous and going hunting and having fun. This time, we're going to talk about the reign of his son, a stripling of 25 when his father died. It seems to me that you can very broadly divide Charles's reign up into three chunks. A first period, or chunk, when he tries to rule like a Tudor, hand in hand with his loving parliament from 1625 to 1629. A period that when he then says, well, hang all that, I'm doing it for myself. Known to history as his personal rule, or possibly 11 years tyranny to 1640. And the last period, one of conflict, which comes to a rather sharp end in 1649. Or it does for him, anyway. Today, we're going to hear about the first bit. How Charles tried to work out how he wanted to rule, and he tries to make that happen and has, it must be admitted, the odd problem. Now then, who is this new lad, the new king whose head is on the block, if that 
isn't, again, an insensitive phrase. Doing history at a Gallup doesn't mean we have to dump 1066 and all that, I assume, does it? Standards must surely be maintained. So, according to Sellers and Yeatman, Charles was a cavalier king and therefore had a small pointed beard, long flowing curls, a large flat flowing hat and gay attire. Roundheads, incidentally, we are told, were different from Cavaliers because Cromwell had all their heads made perfectly round, which is not an explanation I had formerly been aware of, but there you go. Now, Charles had not been born to rule over us, and I am sure had his older brother Henry ruled as he was supposed to do, Charles would have made an excellent Duke of York or whatever. He would probably have gone down in history as a great patron of the arts and a royal philanthropist noted for his propriety and the modesty of his behaviour. For Charles had many good features. As you may or may not be aware, he will go down in history to some as something of a villain. And yet he makes a very odd villain, which is maybe why some people see him instead as a martyr. He wasn't the kind of guy who tortured small animals for fun or liked to take an axe to kitchen doors to get at screaming people or go out of an evening armed with a chainsaw. He was a man of great self-control and courtesy. He will establish a court which was as well-controlled and as strict a model of propriety as any monarch could manage. I mean, super formal, but well-behaved, not a chip off the old block whatsoever. If that, again, isn't an insensitive expression in the circumstances... No, no, he was very cultured and would probably become our most discerning art collector of all the monarchs. Famed for it, he is. Especially his relationship with Van Dyck, famously, but also Rubens. He was deeply religious and he took his duties as a monarch very seriously. James had driven his ministers up the wall, constantly unavailable out hunting. Charles was a hard worker. Well, that all sounds exemplary. Bring, on, bring him on. Golden Age coming up and indeed the Venetian ambassador saw him arrive and was impressed. Signs of being temperate, moderate, and of exchanging all the prodigality of the past for order and profit. There will, of course, be a but, which we will see unfold, if, that's an, if that isn't a hideous image. But as a citer, he probably lacked confidence, and in his early years relied heavily on his best pal, Buckingham, almost as though the Buckster was his glamorous and worldly elder brother. His lack of confidence made him a bit of a stickler for small things, and each smallest thing could end up being taken as a test of loyalty. It's not that Charles didn't listen to advice or even disagreement, but when he made a decision or gave an order, obedience and compliance was to be immediate and it was to be complete. Deviance could be seen not as having a valid alternative view, but as a rebellion. And he found it difficult to accept that people with opposing opinions might hold them just as strongly as he held his own. Partly, this was because he had imbibed his vision of kingship from his father's teaching. A king's power was absolute, his conscience came from God. And partly, because his lack of self-confidence made him rather inflexible, he found it difficult to bend with the wind, to live to fight another day. And finally, he was deeply pious, and in common with a man who rather took things to extremes, some of his views about the Church of England would sound excessive even to his supporters. When he came to the throne, he was pretty much as popular as he ever would be in his lifetime. This was something of a turnaround, because just a couple of years before, his future subjects had watched with horror as he sped to seek an alliance with the hated and feared Spanish and to court the hand of a Catholic princess, arm in arm with his father's partner in crime, the Duke of Buckingham. And yet he'd returned. Not only had he returned without a Spanish queen, but he was full of the spirit of a seemingly righteous fire ready to fight the Protestant cause on the continent. He'd partnered with Parliament to fund the first stage of visiting war on Catholic Empire, to restore the Winter King and the Winter Queen to the Palatinate, even publicly using Parliament to overturn the desires of James, the anointed monarch. Now, Count Mansfield's expedition, it is true, had finished in horrible, horrible, abject and really quite embarrassing failure. But hopes for Charles were higher than the highest of kites. 
Now, this was a positive thing in a way. It's always good to have the nation behind you. But Charles's job in managing the three British kingdoms just was not trivial. It is true to say that diversity and powerful regions weren't rare in early modern Europe, but Charles had a right old balancing act to perform. His largest kingdom, the five million subjects of England and Wales, was, it's fair to say, pretty united and settled, with precious little spirit of dissent from its state church, the Church of England. But his second largest, Ireland, with 1.4 to 2 million people, was deeply divided into Gales, Old English, New English, a mainly Catholic population with a ruling elite that was itself divided between Protestant and Catholic. And then the smallest kingdom, the 1 million Scots, was almost as divided as that, Large parts of the lowlands were increasingly wedded to Presbyterianism, a kirk without bishops, that is. But Episcopalian, bishops, and Catholic Catholicism remained very strong in the northeast. There was a widespread fear about rule by an absentee king based in London and the danger of becoming a province of England. And meanwhile, there were deep, long-standing differences in culture, language and comprehension between the Highland Gale and the lowland Scottish areas. In religion in particular, the very idea of uniformity across all the British kingdoms was fraught with danger and indeed optimism. Still, a careful and sensitive monarch could draw on a deep reserve of loyalty towards the monarchy. Hopefully, Charles will turn out to be careful and sensitive. By the way, if you want to hear more detail about Charles and the kingdoms he inherited, you can find it in episodes 350 and 351, and you can find even more about Scotland in 355. One of Charles's very first acts was to make sure the whole world knew of his absolute confidence in his father's right-hand man, the Duke of Buckingham. He confirmed him in all his offices and even had a golden key cut for his boon companion as a symbol that he would always be at home to his advice. Courtiers duly took note. To get your project or preferment approved, it would really help to have the support of the grand and proud Duke. The first concern of state lay very much in foreign affairs, the right focus and task of princes, of course. Since 1618, the object of English policy had been to restore the Stuart Winter Queen to her rightful inheritance in the Palatinate, from where Catholic imperial Habsburg forces had ejected her and her hub. It was both a dynastic and increasingly religious Protestant mission, and Charles's people thoroughly approved of it. In his court and Puri Council, Charles and Buckingham in very broad terms had two factions vying for their favour and influencing strategy. The top dogs, at the moment, tails high, noses damp, healthy, were the so-called patriots. They delighted in Charles's aims for an aggressive, boots-on-the-ground strategy to force the return of the Platinate to its rightful owners and support the wider Protestant cause and alliance by force of arms. They urged the king to get the money he undoubtedly needed by working hand-in-hand with Parliament and supporting that traditional Elizabethan Calvinist Church of England. On the other side of the Privy Council, tails currently between their legs looking about hangdog were the pro-Spanish faction. The disaster of the Spanish match turning into the Spanish natch had turned them for the moment into backbenchers. But their time might come. They were much more dynastically oriented, much more inclined to believe that the king's power was absolute and that Parliament was simply there to toe the line and provide the cash. They were also much less concerned with religion. Many of them, indeed, were Catholics or heading that way. They thought the best way to restore the Palatinate was not by force, but it was by an alliance with the European power that had the most leverage over the Habsburg Emperor, the Catholic and Habsburg Spanish. So, those are the teams. For the moment, Charles was committed to the Patriot cause, and to succeed, he needed Parliament to open the national purse and give him the wherewithal to deliver that job. Armies and navies did not come cheap. But before his first Parliament, Charles had more domestic matters to attend to. He was to be married to his father's choice of bride, Henrietta Maria, sister of the King of France, 
Louis XIII. And so in June 1629, Henrietta Maria duly arrived along with a vast household and contingent of Catholic priests and advisers. Now, she hasn't always had a good press, hasn't Henrietta Maria, I have to say. Many Protestants at the time saw her as an evil manipulator of the king, perverting the true cause of Protestantism, and were inclined to accuse her of being at the root of many of their disagreements with the king. Alternatively, she has been seen as a rather over-sentimentalised figure of tragedy. Whatever view you finally form of her, she is not a cipher. It's true to say that in the first few years of her marriage to Charles, things were very stormy. After all, she was very young when she arrived, just 15, and she was firstly committed to the Catholic faith due to her upbringing. And she was initially, initially then petulant and demanding, but the vast household she clung to from home was finally thinned down, and once the third person in the marriage had gone, namely Buckingham, she and Charles actually became firmly supportive of each other, soulmates, you might say, passionate in their cause. Henrietta Maria would at very least be brave, assertive, opinionated, whether right or wrong. For Charles's subjects, marrying a Catholic French princess wasn't much better than marrying a Catholic Spanish princess. But she also brought the mind-bending complexity of a French alliance into the nice, neat, diplomatic situation I have just described. France was a bit of a curveball. Still, in the grips of the fallout from her religious wars... She was at once enemies of the Habsburgs, so that's okay at the moment. But Louis XIII's policy was to emasculate the power of the Huguenot Protestant minority in France and remove the protections that Henry IV had granted them in order to win peace. In particular, that meant reducing the Huguenot fortress of La Rochelle. It will be a challenging relationship because the English were very passionate to defend the cause of the Huguenots. OK, on then to Parliament. Charles's expectations, therefore, were high that summer and autumn. He had a debt of a million quid to pay off. He had a war to wage. A war demanded by Parliament and his people, let it be noted. So, you know, he had a right to expect some help. And just running the Navy cost 300,000 quid a year. He made it clear to his first Parliament that he expected the focus of the debates to be on a quick vote of loads and loads of cash through new taxes and confirmation of what was surely just a formality, the right to gather customs and dues. I mean, that was standard, surely. Then, with that done, he'd put the disaster of Count Mansfield's exhibition behind him. They'd send a fleet to singe the King of Spades' beard, just like Drake and Hawkins and all those guys. And also, he could point to Buckingham's construction of a grand Protestant coalition with Denmark and that needed money to visit Protestant vengeance on the imperial Catholic forces and win back the Palatinate. I feel we need to cry Harry and St George or something at this point. Do we? The Parliament of 1625 and 1626 was therefore a deep and enduring disappointment to Charles. The trouble was that the business was not finished from his dad's reign. There was unfinished business, ladies and gentlemen. The thing about customs dues was that there was all that malarkey with James and his random impositions and all kinds of goods without getting parliamentary approval. And complain as they might, Parliament ain't got no satisfaction over that. There's more about the 1625 Parliament in episodes 352 and 354. By the way, it's a bit of a humdinger. So, understandably, the MPs wanted to talk about this sort of stuff as well. You know, clear the air, get things off on the right foot. You know the kind of stuff. But it was July. The military campaigning season was slipping away and Charles wanted to get that expedition to Cardiff under sail. He couldn't understand what all this messing about was for. He insisted they just vote generous subsidies right away generous and then he would promise to deal with their grumbles and grievances later. It'll be fine. Trust me, I'm an absolute monarch. The Commons sort of went along with it a little bit. They did vote a subsidy, but it was very mean, a paltry £100,000, and this was barely enough to pay Buckingham's pastry chef, let alone launch a victorious naval campaign against Spain. In response to royal objections, 
the Commons reluctantly did vote a bit more, but just 40,000 quid, and refused to vote customs for life of the king, as had previously been normal. Charles could have them for one year, now, but no more until they thought about what best to do about the fact that James had been imposing new customs taxes without consent. Well, Charles was livid. He'd given clear instructions. Parliament had asked for war, now refused to pay for it. So he waved his wand and he made the problem go away by dissolving Parliament. He would use Henrietta's dowry to pay for the naval expedition to Cardiz in Spain, and in the wake of a no-doubt glorious victory, Parliament would come to heel. Many on the Privy Council begged him not to do this, begged him to work this out with Parliament, because, as sure as eggs is eggs, he'd have to call Parliament again, and the next swarm will come out of the same hive, they said. Charles ignored them. In point of fact, the military endeavours in 1626 did absolutely nothing to repair any offences and restore the people's faith in their king and his judgment. In fact, it was a catalogue of disasters. For one thing, the French alliance resulted in the huge embarrassment of seeing English ships being used against the French Protestants in La Rochelle. It was a public relations disaster of exquisite proportions. Meanwhile, the expedition to Cardiz was a complete fiasco. Buckingham had actually been mad keen to lead it, but luckily for him, didn't end up doing so. So what happened was the English sat impotently on the shore outside Cardiz, poorly supplied, equipped, trained, and completely inadequate for the task. It was then reported that the whole army, except only the commanders, was all drunken and in one common confusion, some of them shooting at one another amongst themselves. So, they ran away. Ragged, desperate and dying seamen arrived home, were discharged and filled the streets of Portsmouth with their begging. Count Mansfield was beginning to look like a military genius by comparison. Oh, and one more thing. The French king destroyed the Huguenot navy and captured the Ile de Ré, a vital part of the defences of Huguenot La Rochelle. And the French Protestants stood on the edge of disaster. Well, in December 1626, Charles therefore sat with his Privy Council and debated what to do about all of this. It was not an easy discussion. The Patriot parliamentary faction had rather lost ground because Charles was angry with Parliament, who had not bowed to the royal prerogative and ponied up enough cash. I mean, he'd started collecting the customs dues anyway, but he felt that Parliament had sought to touch his sovereignty. But he was persuaded at last by the Patriots to call another parliament because that was the only credible way they thought to raise enough money to keep the war going. And Charles graciously announced that for the distemper of five or six men, he would not be angry with his people, but still endeavour to preserve their love to him. Phew, thank you, sir. Very generous, sir. At the same time, the Patriots at court, led by Robert Rich, the enormously wealthy Earl of Warwick, turned their attention to religion. They were keen to get this move towards Arminianism that James had shown nipped in the bud. Two well-known Arminian bishops had newly been appointed and would soon be appointed to the Privy Council itself, a very worrying display that the new king was also moving towards that point of view. Just for the avoidance of doubt, by the way. That is Arminian, after Jacob Arminius, not Armenian, as in Armenia in the Caucasus. Sounds obvious, but it has come up. Anyway, one of those new appointments was one William Lord, whose name would become a byword for religious repression in the eyes of both traditional and radical Calvinists, and the godly, or so-called Puritans. And Lord also had the ear of Charles's confidant, the Duke of Buckingham. So his influence was beginning to grow greater even than the reassuringly Calvinist Archbishop of Canterbury, George Abbott. So Warwick and his colleagues on the Privy Council persuaded the King to call a conference of divines to York House to thrash out this thing, to confirm that the views of Arminius were not commensurate with the doctrine and practice of the Church of England 
as established by Elizabeth. A few words on why Arminianism was seen as such a threat then. Religious attitudes are very, very important to what follows, so at the risk of irritating you, I should also tell you that you can find much more in episode 353. So, theologically, Arminius challenged the idea of predestination, the idea that only God's grace could win you the kingdom of heaven, not your own actions on earth. A core belief in Calvinism that, Arminians proposed that, similar to Catholicism actually, although not quite as far as them, people could have an impact on the fate of their souls by their actions in life. More obviously, though, was their love of what Lord would call the beauty of holiness, ceremony, church vestments, formality, altars at the end of the church, separated from the congregation by rails, to enhance its mystery, bowing at the name of Jesus, that sort of thing. They emphasised also the importance of the role of bishops. So the threat was not just spiritual either. Listen to what some of the Arminian clerics said, and loudly, about royal authority. The image and representation of God upon earth, for kings be gods upon earth. Okay, and specifically and politically, when it comes to the idea that parliamentary consent was required to levy taxes, well, poo to that, because all we had was the king's. He might command all wives, children, estates, and all. You can see why kings might like that sort of thing. But in his heart, and almost certainly not cynically, Charles went further. He believed that bishops themselves were touched with divinity and he would defend their role to the death. And he firmly believed that all of this had always been part of the Elizabethan settlement anyway. So for all those who had both adhered to Calvinist doctrine since the time of St Elizabeth and believed in the vital constitutional role of Parliament, maintaining the supremacy of Calvinist doctrine and personnel in the Church of England was critical. Reconfirming this supremacy was the aim for the Earl of Warwick and George Abbott at the York House Conference. The outcome was a disaster for Warwick, the Patriots and the Calvinists. There was no commitment at the conference by the king to reaffirm the supremacy of traditional doctrine, apart from some hand-waving by Charles to adhere to the Elizabethan settlement, which he interpreted in a distinctly Arminian light anyway. And from here on, Charles increasingly tried to close down any debate and reserve it to the church and the royal prerogative. The failure at York House to reach agreement is critical. It both heightened the growing concern about the growth of Arminianism within the church and the threat of royal absolutism and tyranny, and it changed it from code yellow, because they were worried anyway, to code red. And it showed that Calvinists could get no redress to their worries from the king, or indeed from his court, the only real ally now for those worried about both religious change and the king's worryingly high view of the royal prerogative, was in Parliament, in the Commons in particular. So put a yellow sticky post-it note on this, really important read later, or underline in virtual highlighter pen, Parliament would be the cockpit where the battle for both England's political and religious future would be fought. Because Parliament was resolutely peopled by Calvinists, of the whole House of Commons in the 1620s, just two MPs who supported Arminianism have been identified. There's a rather lovely sort of summary bit of historiography about this, the idea that it was clerics versus lawyers, which sounds a bit like a film Cowboys and Aliens. Lawyers were an increasingly strong profession in England, a core part of the education of most gentry and the middling sort in particular. So 40% of lawyers came from below the social strata of the gentry. Lawyers themselves made up about 20% of MPs in the Commons. And many of them, though not all, were not only Calvinist, but had very different views of the royal prerogative to the Arminian clerics. They held that royal authority came not from God, but ultimately from the people, and that the king was subject to law, not above it. And that, in the words of one at the time, it is the highest prerogative of the king that he cannot do against law. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Now, the 1626 Parliament was even worse for Charles than 1625 had been. The general tenor was the same. The Commons insisted on discussing grievances, both financial and, critically, religious, which really wasn't supposed to be in their area of competence. And this time, they went a step further. And they refused to vote any new subsidies and taxation at all until the King had specifically addressed their grievances and satisfied them. They objected strenuously to the fact that he was continuing to collect customs dues after his first year, which had been approved, so now he was collecting them without parliamentary consent. But once more, Charles insisted that they just vote the taxes he needed to prosecute the war they had asked for and trust him to deal with these grievances later, which he promised faithfully to do. It's not that Charles was completely unaware of the politics and the need to court MPs. He did try to court their opinion. He appeared to take them seriously. He was not above pandering to their prejudices, such as reconfirming recusancy fines against Catholics and Jesuits and so on. And in particular, he and the Privy Council instituted a quite explosive piece of new international strategy to win their favour. So, England would now go to war with France in defence of the French Protestants of La Rochelle. As a piece of international diplomacy, this was wildly optimistic. England is still the smallest of the big nations and was now at war with the three superpowers, Spain, Imperial Germany and France. Nice one. I mean, I know where their clever money is going. But if it did have an advantage, it was that it played to the desires of Charles's subjects to fight the Protestant cause and therefore, presumably, vote in the money to fight it. But in 1626, not only was the Commons being difficult, but they were taking aim at Buckingham himself again. Buckingham was becoming the lightning rod of all the Commons' grievances, the way of attacking the King without attacking the King. Charles defended his friend. Charles was notably loyal towards his servants and friends, and he made it clear that Buckingham was only doing his, the King's, bidding. And by so doing, again, he made it a personal issue. There is an attractive part to this, it seems to me. Charles was too honest to hide behind his friend and throw him to the wolves for political expediency, as his father had thrown the bacon to the wolves. But it was politically naive. It also smacked a bit of arrogance. Charles believed that all he had to do, as king, was to invoke his word and his honour, and his people would bow their heads in loyal acquiescence. Well, they didn't. Instead, they presented a petition to impeach Buckingham. Charles's head blew up. Once more, he dissolved Parliament in a paddy and with it any chance of getting those subsidies. There was an interesting bit of analysis of this problem here at the time with these failed parliaments by a French diplomat. He remarked, that Charles appeared impressively committed to Parliament and to calling Parliament, and he respected the English Constitution as he understood it. And yet, Charles wasn't prepared to pay the real price required for a happy partnership. Instead, he only wanted a Parlement à sa mode, a Parliament in his own image, that agreed with him in all respects. If MPs agreed with them, he would love them. If they didn't, he could not believe they held a principled alternative point of view which needed to be discussed and dealt with. He would consider them simply rebels. Charles and Buckingham now turned again to other means to raise money for war, and they reverted to a very old traditional idea of a forced loan, i.e. please lend me some money. Oh, sorry, one word. Lend me some money or else. London was a traditional target for such instruments and were forced to pony up 20,000 quid. Money well spent, actually, through history, since London had received many privileges from the Crown over the years as part of that relationship. I mean, don't get me wrong, they whined. They whined like Topsy, their money men, after all, on the principle, as one philosopher said, that whatever you do, make it look hard, because you'll get more kudos for it.
think they might be Confucius? Anyway, Charles, Buckingham and the Privy Council then went to the peers, knights and merchants of the realm for their loan. Now there was a cigarette paper here between this and taxation without consent of Parliament. And to their credit, the judges of the King's Bench said that, and they ruled the forced loan illegal. Charles sat down with them and told them he had the right to exact money when he judged, as king, the situation to be an emergency and that, as a monarch, he was the only judge of what constituted an emergency. And, if they disagreed, he would, and I quote, sweep clean all their benches. And so that was that. Who wants to be sweeped clean? The moderates on the Privy Council fought back. George Council, the Archbishop of Canterbury, in particular did so. Charles would therefore depose him soon afterwards. And there were people who refused to pay, but in the end actually most paid up, and the loan raised a quarter of a million quid. Charles judged it a success, but he would pay a heavy political price. The first sign of the bill being presented came in the case of the Five Knights, something of a marker in English constitutional history. These five men all refused to pay the loan, and foolishly, Charles decided to make an example of them all for educational purposes. So he threw them in jail, without trial, until they would pay. The Five Knights challenged him in the courts about this high-handed action on the basis that there had been no trial and therefore they could not be imprisoned. Charles decided to take that on. He would fight a public court case and demonstrate in law his right to exact money and to incarcerate delinquents if he deemed it necessary where reasons of state made it so. And again, only the king, of course, could determine whether those matters of state were sufficiently urgent to make it necessary. This very public case became a cause celebre. Everyone loves the courtroom drama after all, and the defence was led by a talented MP, lawyer and philosopher called John Selden, and he appealed, of course, to Magna Carta. No imprisonment without trial. The outcome of the trial was actually a bit of a clever fudge by the judges, which avoided making a legally binding piece of judge-made law, but awarded the result to Charles, and the five knights were forced to either submit or stay in jail. Yet again, though, awareness of the threats that Charles presented were heightened. Meanwhile, Charles's reputation and the prestige of his friend Buckingham was going the way of all flesh. At this point, maybe a glorious foreign victory could have saved all. But what we got instead was Buckingham's descent on La Rochelle to save the Huguenot city, a massive effort partly paid by the forced loan, but also paid for by that fine old Elizabethan technique of letters of mark issued to raiders to prey on French merchant shipping. That raised 100,000 quid. The fleet and army sailed, with high hopes that they were going to stick it to the French and save the French Protestants. The deliciously grand Buckingham, by the way, made sure that he'd lack none of the creature comforts on campaign, spending £10,000 on equipping himself and his household, including oxen, milch cows, goats, poultry, a retinue of servants, one of his most sumptuous comforts and richly embroidered clothes for his coachman, footman and pages. The sinews of war, I think that's what they call them. I don't want to give the wrong impression of Buckingham, though. He was undeniably very grand, but he was also hard-working, passionate and dedicated. He was not a lazy dilettante. He fought alongside his men and was deeply committed. But despite all his best efforts, the campaign was a disaster, a complete failure. A remnant of the Grand Fleet and Army limped home, mission not accomplished. Buckingham and Charles's stock had never been lower. What point voting taxation anyway, people said. All the money that had been voted or exacted had resulted in nothing but incompetence and failure. Charles was desperate to send another expedition to France before La Rochelle fell. He felt his honour was tightly bound up in this, and honour was of much most importance to Charles. A new forced loan simply carried too many political risks now, and Charles was not equipped or prepared indeed to attempt to raise a subsidy without consent of Parliament. And anyway, his need was now towering, 
Remember that debt from James's reign? Well, that hasn't gone anywhere either. And so the patriots on the council were able to win one more argument and persuade Charles to call another parliament in 1628. This parliament would result in another constitutional milestone called the Petition of Right. If you want to know more about the Five Nights, the La Rochelle campaign, the fate of Buckingham and the 1628-9 parliament, episodes 356 and 357 are a blast. But the story is that the House of Commons was no more prepared to compromise and now had more grievances on the list. Imprisonment without cause, taxation without consent now had to be added to the list together with the feeling that voting money for this lot was like chucking it down the drain along with the rats. The result of this was the Petition of Right, suggested and crafted by Edward Cook, a lawyer whose belief in the rights of Englishmen was towering, who believed that Charles was innovating here and removing ancient rights of liberty. The aim of Cook and his supporters, like John Pym, who would become a particularly significant figure in Charles's life in the 1640s, was not to destroy or undermine the monarchy. Far from it. They were firm believers in the English constitution of king in parliament, king, lords and commons working in unison. They believed Charles had disturbed this balance and this balance must be redressed for the health of the Commonwealth. The petition of right was the medicine that would restore the humours of the constitution to balance. In return, they would vote five subsidies for the king, five subsidies, a pretty generous grant of taxation. The petition of right they presented had four main points. That no person be forced to provide a gift, loan or tax without an Act of Parliament. That none should be imprisoned without cause. Soldiers should not be billeted without the free consent of the owner to it. And that martial law could only be used in war or against direct rebellion. Now, Charles did not see this process as a restorative or healthy one. What he saw was not an honest attempt to preserve the Commonwealth, but to destroy his rightful prerogative and enhance the power of the Commons at his expense. Remember James's view, that though a king was honour-bound to consult his subjects, if a kingdom was unlucky enough to draw the tyrant card from the pack, all they could do was bow their heads and wait for it to pass. Charles did not believe Cook and his fellow MPs were men of principle. He saw them as malignants, rebels and traitors, or, as he would say, some few vipers that did cast the midst of undutifulness over most of their eyes. Nonetheless, Parliament had him over a barrel. Charles twisted and Charles turned, negotiated, especially got furious over number two, his right to imprison without charge, if he deemed it necessary as king. He tried to cheat by approving the petition of right with the wrong words, which would make it conditional rather than binding, but the commons held firm. Eventually Charles gave way, approved the petition, and a subsidy bill was passed, and Parliament was prorogued for another session in the autumn, the last outstanding issues to be covered, including those customs dues. And well, hurrah for that. Presumably, truth, light and harmony are now restored. Well, you'd think so. But there was more to come. In the middle of this came a tragedy. In August, Charles and Buckingham were near Portsmouth, where Buckingham was reviewing the fleet before it could sail again to relieve La Rochelle. The day after speaking to the king, Buckingham strode out from his apartments in Portsmouth as normal into the crowd of well-wishers, sycophants, naval officers, petitioners and servants that followed great men around like a cloud of flies. As he leant forward to talk to one of the captains, there was a flash of steel, a cry, there was blood and Buckingham fell, pierced by a blade to the heart, dead within minutes at the hands of an unemployed seaman, Tom Felton. Charles was devastated by his death. After being told, it was reported that he threw himself on his bed, lamenting with such passion and with abundance of tears the loss he had of an excellent servant and the horrid manner in which he had been deprived of him. But Charles had to face yet more pain, for when Parliament was reconvened, Cook and Pym were not finished. 
Because Charles had been naughty in the interim, appalled at the concessions he'd been forced to make in the Petition of Right, he rescinded the order to have the Petition of Right published, and had all of them instead pulped. That must be put right, and the petition made public, demanded Parliament. Plus, there was still the matter of customs dues, and the fact that Jews had been collected for the last two years without parliamentary consent. The people who had illegally collected those taxes must be publicly put on trial for their crime and made an example of. And then, there was the matter of all those Arminian religious appointments. The balance of the church must be restored, and the likes of William Lord removed from their posts. Lest you think all these issues, by the way, were simply a matter of debate at the high table of politics, think again. As I think we discussed in James's reign, England was already making great strides towards what might be described as a kind of public sphere, political debate at many levels of society about the great events of the day, news spreading by newsletter, news sheets, broadsheets, libels, ballads, a network of personal contacts, traders and chapmen spreading the news throughout the country though particularly in the capital, of course, London. So what was happening in Parliament was a matter for public debate and interest. When the Petition of Right was approved by the King, for example, bells were rung, bonfires were lit, celebrations indulged at the apparent outbreak of peace between King and Parliament. As Parliament reassembled in 1629 then, the issues of religion and the resistance of the King to Parliament's demands with the stuff of comment and libels posted publicly. So one at St Paul's Cross roundly informed Charles that since he'd lost the hearts of his people, he was no longer king. Others accused William Lord of being the fountain of all wickedness, which must at least be considered impolite. People were engaged. Charles' response to these demands appeared surprisingly conciliatory and moderate to begin with searching for agreement and peace against what was most certainly an attack on his prerogative, certainly as he saw it. But ultimately, it was clear that he would not comply. To remove bishops by parliamentary demand would have been a dramatic assault on his rights and of the church. To prosecute customs collectors who, as he again said publicly, had merely been carrying out his own orders, he would consider that absolutely against his honour. Once more, he would not throw those people to the wolves, and if he did, as he said to a courtier, none would ever obey him again. There was a face-off. Neither king nor parliament would back down. Ominously, Charles let it be understood that if customs dues were not awarded, he would consider what he called new councils. Now, exactly what that meant, no one was quite sure But in the background, the old Spanish faction were advising Charles that there were raised to rule without this pesky parliament. Compromise wasn't absolutely required, and that the patriot faction had led him into humiliation and an assault on his rightful prerogative, and their star was rising. So, on the 25th of February, 1629, as the tensions mounted, The rumour went round that Charles was planning to deal with all of this by just proroguing Parliament again, burying the problem and applying these new councils. A group of MPs met in the Three Cranes Inn in London to plan their tactics. They agreed the text of a speech they would make in the Commons, a way to make sure they'd made a clear public statement in defence of the liberties, rights and demands of the people in the public eye before they were closed down. In the Commons then the following day, MP John Elliott stood to make his speech. But the Speaker of the House intervened. Parliament, he announced, was to be adjourned. The rumours had been true. There was uproar, pandemonium. They were to be silenced. But Elliott and his allies were ready. One group locked the door of the Commons and made sure none could leave or enter. Two MPs, Denzel Hollis and Benjamin Valentine, rushed to the Speaker's chair and held him down by force as he struggled to rise to signal Parliament closed. And then Elliot carried on and he read out his prepared declaration. It would be treason, he declared, for anyone to introduce popery or Arminianism. 
It would be treason, he declared, to levy or collect any customs or subsidies not approved by Parliament. It would be treason, he declared, to pay any such taxes. Pandemonium or what? This is rebellion, isn't it? This is a new kind of treason. Treason had always been a crime against the king. Now here's a definition of treason against something else, the Commonwealth, the people. A crime, by the looks of it, of which even the king could be convicted. Nine members of parliament were arrested by the king as the session was finally closed down and the MPs had left. Parliament was dissolved by order of the king. Charles had turned the lights out of parliament and it would be 11 years before they were turned on again. Right, well, we've seen in this episode then how different positions were being increasingly clearly articulated between the rights of Parliament and the prerogatives of the monarch. And that in addition to that, Parliament had become the champion of Calvinist religion against the beliefs of William Lord and the Arminian clerics. Charles had failed to resolve these through debate. He would now try to sideline Parliament and prove that it was royal rule that would lead to peace, prosperity and social stability. So let's see how that goes in the next History of England at Gallup. Before I leave, though, let me remind you of the core episodes, but also that you can listen to my podcasts free of adverts and access an extra 100 hours of shedcasts by becoming a member at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. And also, by so doing, you'll support my work and make me happy, which is not everything, but it's not nothing. That's thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Until next time, then, thanks to all of you for listening. Good luck and have a great week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 